As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Jeremy Stretch of CIBC as he considers these headlines. Not much movement in the market. I've got Euro 105.40. Jeremy, a key question to me is simple, and that is the idea of what 2% means. These are different economies, different nations. Do you look at it as 2.0%? Is the ECB Bundesbank hope 2.2% while the Fed's 2% is 2.8%? Well, of course, the, the eurozone is a is a difficult beast to manage, and I think uh, President Lagarde is very mindful of that because, as as we've touched upon, there is a very different uh, degree of uh, performance and activity in a number of the different economies um, across the zone. Now, the eurozone and ECB is aiming to get back uh, inflation to that two uh, percent target threshold over the medium term. I think it was notable that obviously inflation in September did fall a little faster than the ECB had been expecting, and as I say, I think uh, the next meeting in December will proved to be particularly instructive as we get forecast out to 2026 uh, for the first time, but also looking at those longer-run inflation expectations. And if those are back towards right. the 2% threshold in aggregate across the across the whole of the zone, and that, of course, is the difficulty. We right. will still get divergence in the individual nations, but as an aggregate measure, the ECB is going to be aiming to get back to that 2% yeah. target threshold over the course of the uh, next two years. Jeremy, I'm going to go to a wonderful moment I had with the August engineer from Lyon, Jean-Claude Trichet. And he talked to me about transmission, the diffusement of an economy across borders. Europe doesn't have the transmission mechanisms of America, do they? Well, there is obviously one of the inadequacies of the Eurozone project is the, uh, you know, the difficulties on the fiscal side on a relative basis that uh, the U.S. obviously has because the U.S. has uh, the, you know, the federal system and we do get uh, that uh, uh, disbursement of federal funds across the fiscal dynamics. So we are in a situation where the, the, the plumbing, if you like, in terms of the Eurozone economy, in terms of monetary and fiscal policy is very diverse because, of course, fiscal dynamics are still much more at the behest of national governments. But I think the other interesting dynamic to consider as we move into 2024 is that the Eurozone is thinking about bringing back those fiscal thresholds that were put on uh, or suspended during the COVID period. And that will be an interesting dynamic to add to the wrinkle about fragmentation risk. And that, of course, is one of the big concerns that the ECB has to be mindful of, even if uh, President Lagarde will try and downplay any concerns at this particular point. Uh, Jeremy Stretch, thank you so much. 
October 30, Apple to announce new MacBook Pro, MacBook Pros, I should say. Lindsay Piegs is pleased with that because as she ran her Excel spreadsheet on the American economy, it burned up her MacBook a couple days ago. Dr. Piegs joins us now from Stiefel as well. How hard is it to put together an Excel spreadsheet with the mysteries of this American economy? Well, it's typically difficult, but it's become increasingly difficult with all of these ancillary factors that are coming in that are virtually impossible to model. We do have a lot of international factors that are impacting uh, the market's expectations. We do have now unprecedented fiscal variables that we're trying to uh, account for. But I think right now the market is very much discounting that third quarter number, focusing instead on the latest central bank decisions, the BOC, the ECB as a proxy for what to expect from the Fed next week, suggesting that developed central banks around the world, despite still elevated inflation, are starting to pull back in anticipation of a slower level of longer-term growth. So the market very much anticipating the Fed may be moving to the sideline for certainly a prolonged period of time, but maybe indefinitely at this point. So, Lindsay, just to crystallize what you're saying, are you saying that the Fed can kind of look through what we're getting out of this blowout GDP print, or at least that's the market's expectation? No, that's the market's expectation. But remember, the market has been preemptively calling an end to Fed rate hikes for the past two years and uh, wrongly pricing in rate cuts. The Fed, however, has been very clear, beating that drum of higher for longer, very consistent in their message. And I think when we look at some of the underlying data in the Q3 report, the resilience of businesses, the resilience of the consumer. And yes, to Lisa's point, we have seen a little bit of an uptick in claims, particularly continuing claims, but broadly speaking, Speaking, the labor market is still extremely tight. So the Fed is looking at all of these data juxtaposed with inflation that's still too high. I think the committee is going to have a very difficult time selling a prolonged period of a pause. I think there is still more work to be done before they reach a sufficiently restrictive level to ensure that we remain on a disinflationary trend back to 2%. Well, Lindsay, you're getting at what I've been wondering about. Of course, this is a very uh, binary question, and we live in a shades of gray world. But when you think about the just raft of numbers that we got this morning, you take a look at the blowout GDP print, but then you look at initial jobless claims a little bit higher. What's the stronger signal there? Which one should we be focusing on? Well, the, the consumer, certainly, and, and I understand that this is backward-looking, but remember, claims are extremely volatile, and we don't want to look at one data point, but rather the underlying trend in claims, which is still extremely low, still signaling that tight labor market or tight labor market conditions, which is going to continue to perpetuate the ability for upward pressure on wages, extending that to further purchasing power for the consumer in the marketplace, suggesting, again, the, the backbone of the economy, the underlying support of the economy, i.e the consumer remains resilient. There's been a real angst underpinning some of the recent sell-off in the bond market at the longer end that hasn't been tied to the Fed at all. It's been tied to a widening deficit and likely increasing spending. How much is the Fed going to find itself increasingly at odds with fiscal spending? Because you talk about the need potentially for the Fed to do more. How much is the strength that we're seeing in the GDP preprint tied directly to that government spending? 
Oh, absolutely. This is one of the problems. When monetary policy and fiscal policy are moving in opposite directions, that's going to force the Fed's hand to take an even firmer position to counteract that expansion of government uh, outlays. Now, we do know that federal stimulus has largely concluded, but there's other fiscal stimulus that's coming down the pipeline as a result of legislation that was passed over the last 12 to 18 months, be that infrastructure spending, the IRA, the CHIPS Act, and other spatterings of state and local stimulus that is still being spent on constituents. So uh, there is still a lot of purchasing power, a lot of borrowing and investment power out in the marketplace that the Fed is desperately trying to drain out of the system. But again, the more that we see monetary and fiscal policy moving in opposite directions, the more that becomes a barrier for the Fed to achieve its goal of price stability. Lindsay, a lot of people are writing in. They're saying that I didn't really have a right to be confused because it's core PCE. And when you look at the actual inflation, yes, you're seeing growth, but it is disinflationary. You are seeing a reduced pace of growth when you strip out energy and food. How much credence do you give the idea that we got in this GDP print uh, a core PCE read of 2.4%? Is that the sort of number to hinge off? It's certainly encouraging, but again, when we look at some of the other data metrics, when we look at headline PCE, when we look at the headline CPI, we're not seeing this clear downward trend of disinflation. Now, of course, monetary policy is not based on headline price pressures. We strip out those volatile food and energy components. Lindsay Biggs is still very near her good conversation with us here. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Edward Mills, hugely experienced. He is at Raymond James, but far more has legit committee and individual congresspeople skills in Washington, particularly working with uh, Maloney of uh, New York. Ed Mills, this new speaker... The uproar that I hear, and yet your research note says he can drive to the center. How does the gentleman from Louisiana move the Republicans to a doable center? I think it's going to be a tough task. I think, Tom, the thing that I am most focused on with the new speaker is how quickly 
at the end it happened in DC, things appear impossible right up until the moment it's inevitable. So having a unified uh, Republican caucus uh, is not something we would have thought. But the big question in my mind is this is a speaker who has not been vetted. And as he is vetted, how does he come out of right. that vet? Uh, what type of narrative about his leadership? And I think what we're talking about is for him to keep that, for him to keep the seat, for him to be able to govern, um, you do need to find the middle because what right. we've seen is that the fringe uh, does not support many legislative packages, right. and that's paralysis. Help me with the sequence here, horse before cart. Is November 17th in a government shutdown prior to the defense allocations? You mentioned the first task of Senate, House, House, Senate is, well, war funding, if you, you will. Is that going to be before November 17? I, I think it's a kind of a toss-up between the two. I think to start with the November 17th deadline, uh, Tom, um, we're not going to have a government shutdown. It looks like we are going to uh, punt uh, government funding either into January or maybe as far as April. Um, but in doing that, there will be the conversation about defense funding. Uh, the president has sent up to Congress uh, a robust uh, supplemental package. Um, and what we're hearing is the Senate will want to have a strong bipartisan vote on that, trying to put pressure on the House, not differentiating aid for Ukraine from Israel or Taiwan. So how do you understand, Ed, the fact that Mike Johnson has made a real uh, important issue of his cutting the deficit, and yet there are all of these requests to finance some pretty big uh, military expenditures? How much is that going to be a sticking point that makes it uncertain whether we get this aid across? We were speaking earlier with John Lieber of Eurasia, and he was saying, we're going to get it passed. Are you as confident? I am confident that we'll get something passed. I think that the big question is timing in the scale of this, Lisa. Uh, when you go back to some of the other pushes to become speaker, uh, this was probably most out in the focus uh, during the push for Jim Jordan. Uh, the only way some of the defense hawks within the Republican caucus were willing to support him, and the expectation is the only reason why they're willing to support Johnson, was that they needed to get a guarantee on a robust defense bill extra defense funding in a Defense Authorization Act before the end of the year. Uh, that group is far greater than the four needed to keep that speakership. So if he wants to keep that speakership, he's been against that defense aid in the past and especially voted against Ukraine aid. Uh, but the geopolitical environment's very different now and his political position is completely changed. And Ed, to do all that, you made the point that Johnson really needs to find the middle here. but. If he doesn't, I was speaking to Henrietta Trace yesterday, and she made the point that the Senate is still functional. That's the saving grace, because at the end of the day, the House will do what the Senate tells it to. Do you agree with that logic? Uh, largely. I think when you see uh, the Senate, if they pass something with 80, 90 votes, uh, it's not a politically tenable position not to even have a vote on that in the House. And if you were to have a vote on something that passed with 80 or 90 of the 100 votes in the Senate uh, in the House, it's near guaranteed to have a majority 
go to the president's desk. Um, and I do think Johnson has a little bit of leeway here where he doesn't have the baggage of some of the previous ones. So some of the first right. fights, which will be government funding and uh, defense funding, he's not necessarily going to get blamed for the position that Republicans are in because he's new to the job. Hey, you know, Ed Mills, I look at this. I was taking Anne-Marie Horton 302, which is Advanced Civics Lessons Inside the Beltway. And I guess every speaker has a lot of power. Is he going to blow up the leadership of the Republican Party or is he going to attach himself to, say, the hockey player from Minnesota and the others? Well, I think he's going to attach himself to the majority leader. I think I'd go back to uh, the last time we had a speaker that no one really had heard of, uh, which was Speaker Hassert. And you have the most empowered majority leader kind of in decades with Tom DeLay. When you saw him have the press conference and, and there was some booze by Virginia Fox, what I was watching is Steve Scalise, the majority leader from his state of Louisiana, was standing right behind him and told him exactly what he said. He said, next question, let's talk about policy. Then Mike Johnson said, next question. So he is lockstep with the current majority <laughs> And that is the Ed Mills perspective that's so valuable with Raymond James. Ed Mills, thank you so much. shares not diverging from the rest of the uh, complex. Shares falling after the company warned of a, quote, uncertain revenue outlook for next year. This was the dominant narrative, even though the tech giant beat expectations on third quarter revenue. All of this dashing hopes for a long-term recovery in the company's advertising business. It's spending, though, aggressively in other areas, in artificial intelligence and virtual reality. It raises this question, you know, what are people hinging onto? Just this hope of uncertainty or expectation of uncertainty that we all know? Just Instagram. You know, it's just Instagram. It's it's what Strymon's doing over at Instagram. Real. Classics. You Classics. Know. Mandeep Singh, senior technology yes, analyst. I sit there on Instagram and go, that's a short. <clears throat> Bloomberg Intelligence joining us now. Mandeep, what does it tell you that they came out with really good earnings, uh, at least on the fundamental basis, that they say that there's uncertainty and that the shares sell off? Well, so I think uh, they gave a pretty broad guidance, 13 to 24 percent for next quarter. When you see that sort of wide guidance, you know, uh, you know, the company is not sure. And they didn't uh, have that sort of uncertain guidance on the expense side. So they said reality labs uh, losses would mount. And I, I think where the company is really failing the investors is not giving them markers around what they are actually doing. I mean, losing 15 billion dollars a year on reality labs and not not telling what you are investing in because we know Apple has uh, a new virtual reality headset. It didn't take them $15 billion to make that headset. So clearly they are investing in something right. that nobody knows. And I think that's the uncertainty. How is AI different for Zuckerberg than AI's different for Google, where AI's different for Microsoft? So there is an overlap between Google and Meta's version of AI versus Microsoft's. And Microsoft's uh, corporate, I got to get a job done, let's go. Yeah. And, What's and it, Meta's AI? Meta's AI is you're consuming Instagram feeds, Facebook no. feeds, I mean, uh, the average user is. And so how can AI enhance that experience both for the consumer as well as for the creator who is creating content for the feed? 
And AI can offer you a lot of tools to generate images right. based on text description. So there is a lot that AI can do in messaging. Yeah, Think of customer service, you know, WhatsApp. Oh, so this is AI and Instagram, I don't buy it. AI and Amazon this afternoon. What is Josie going to spin on AI at, at Amazon? I mean, Amazon's story cardboard box? is about compute training the models. Everyone wants uh, these GPUs to train their large language models Yeah, but they're on. buying AI from Microsoft. I saw that 10 days ago or so, right? Yeah, well, uh, they are upgrading their 365 on-prem version to Microsoft. I'm so. completely lost. Well, <laughs> and, and so that's the thing about uh, the generative AI wave, that it is quite broad. And every company can use it in different ways. Some fo companies are focusing on training models. Some fo are focused on inferencing use cases. Cases and uh, it, it I is. Feel, you don't even know what this is, Katie. It feels like a Mork and Mindy skit. Where, you know, Robin Williams is going, no, 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 no. I, I just, everybody's got a different definition of AI. Or I, I guess they're trying to play for a different part of this large pie that everyone sees oh, with generative AI. save me. Well, let's talk about something we all know. Let's talk about the cloud business yeah. at Amazon. Of course, AWS, uh, you saw sales growth there, slowed to a record low in the second quarter. We know that the cloud business was why Alphabet had such a bad day yesterday. What are we going to see out of the cloud business at Amazon? I mean, the good thing is uh, expectations are lower for Amazon, and uh, we're talking about mid-teens growth for AWS, and yes, it has the largest base in cloud, but everyone perceives them to be behind with generative AI workloads. That may not be the case, and so there is room for an upside as long as they prove to the street that you know they are catching up with Gen AI and offering the compute that everyone needs uh, to train their models. And not to go back in time, but you think about what happened at Alphabet. I mean, I'm just stuck on the share price move yesterday, yeah. down almost 10%, worst day since March 2020. Is that an overreaction? Was it that bad? With Alphabet, it definitely feel, uh, felt like an overreaction simply because the service Search business actually did remarkably well, and unlike Meta, which continues to see ad pricing decline, Alphabet saw an ad pricing increase, which is a positive sign. Uh, it's an auction mechanism, so advertisers are bidding up for your ads. And, and there was talk about uncertainty yesterday around the Middle East war and everything that will draw down the advertiser spending. But clearly, uh, Alphabet had a positive print on the search side. And the cloud side, really, the expectations were too high. So I think that's where Amazon may have an advantage going into the print. I want to try to understand the psychology of the investor base. <clears throat> Of these tech names because it's been shifting over time and we've seen that. What are we learning about what the key triggers are going to be to buy and what the key triggers are going to be to sell after the gains that we've seen so far this year? I mean, look, the cost of capital is going up. And so I think the days of spending $15 billion a year on moonshots are probably gone, even for larger companies. As long as they keep delivering, you know, 20% plus growth <coughs> meta for meta, everyone is okay with them spending on Reality Labs. The moment the, that growth decelerates, that's when that $15 billion loss really becomes a sticking point for free cash flow. Is that the reason why you expect things for Amazon to be positive? Because they have that infrastructure, AWS, which is the major player in the cloud space. They have that revenue coming in. They have Tom Keen's offspring buying lots of boxes. How much is that really going to play into a positive that could offset some of the negativity that we're hearing from the likes of UPS this morning? Clearly, I think everyone believes that, you know, digital transformation, generative AI, these are secular trends. And right now, I think for Meta to spend $30 billion in CapEx 
and not have a cloud business or something equivalent is also sticking out because that could well, have but, been a key source of diversification for them. This is an arch question. Do you and Anurag Rana see the cloud business? I have no idea what I'm saying. When you see the cloud business, is it a classic duopoly or triopoly or can there be a set you know, number five, six, seven players. I just don't buy it. I mean, right now it's a triopoly, and Oracle actually is investing a lot in building its They're cloud business. They're investing, but do you believe people can grab share and come down and make a fundamental free cash flow generation, or is it going to squeeze into a triopoly? No, I, I think you can, because right now the compute nature of compute is changing. So it's not CPUs consumed on the cloud anymore. It's GPUs, different types of accelerators, different types of databases. And that's where, if you don't have a legacy business, which right. Microsoft does, I think Google has an advantage, Amazon has an advantage, that they don't have a legacy business. And that's where right. they can keep building that. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us right now, John Furrow on assignment, Catherine Greifeld with us this morning. Michael Nathanson joins us. He's Senior Research Analyst at Moffitt Nathanson on a plethora of things. Lisa, why don't you drag in Nathanson here on Facebook, because you know the story better than I do. All right, Michael. Thank you for joining us. I want to start with the one note of caution that really drove all of the price action. They came out and said, we don't know what's going to happen. What else is new? Advertising, who knows? Oh, my goodness, the stock fell. How realistic is this? or instructive of what we can expect in the year to come? Yeah, I, uh, I was disappointed by that fact that the market took that comment around with it. These guys just put up 23% ag growth in a quarter. And a year ago, people were thinking this business was dead, right? All the momentum is behind them. They called out a little bit of choppiness because of what's happening in the Middle East. But I don't think it's that big of a deal. I mean, their guidance is still pretty strong. So I think this is a this is an amazing story in terms of Tom and T-Mobile. This could be the, you know, this could be the second story that people have just underestimated. 
the strength of a business model. It, the recovery's been amazing. There's really been has. a lot of there's been a lot of questions though around just in general the online advertising business, especially at a time where all of the content creators are facing off with consumers that really don't like advertising and are willing to spend right. to avoid it. How much are we seeing with respect to consolidation of market share at the likes of Meta at a time when Google also saw an increase in ad spend despite their cloud issues? What does that tell us about the overall market versus just consolidation with the with the leaders? Okay, big picture, those two companies, the growth rates of Meta and Alphabet are back to where they were in early 22. So if you remember the past couple of quarters, there's all kinds of worries about e-commerce slowing, it's getting better, about changes to Apple's IDFA system, that's, that's been fixed. Um, so it says to you like the market's actually really healthy and that you're seeing kind of the structural tailwinds of e-commerce and online gaming discontinue, right? We had a very tough compare in 2022 that's now behind you. So I feel pretty good about the health of this business with the scale right. for For a Snap, for a Twitter, good luck to you. That's not going to happen. You know, Michael Nathanson, congratulations. Netflix has done a double. It's off. Mark Mahaney, what's he know? He's going up another $100 on Netflix. Review for us the winner of streaming. Is Netflix a Microsoft equivalent even at 38 times earnings? Good question, Tom. It's different than, than Microsoft because you don't have the operating leverage, you know, longer term, right? So you have to keep investing in content. The great thing about software models is the incremental margins are massive. Once you build it, you, you get the benefit of scale. In media, um, for the most part, in, in the streaming model, you have to keep investing in content. So they'll have margin leverage, but nowhere near the same margin leverage of what we saw last night with Meta or Microsoft. So, but in streaming, they're a winner just because it's such a tough business for everyone that's not Netflix right now. So it's really, oh, there's wow. one winner, there's Disney, and then there's everyone, oh. Disney's not even a winner yet. And they're only just churning cash flow to get your attention. Yeah, but you know, I just brought up the Disney chart. You know, I just I, we do this for Michael Nathanson folks to give him give him uh, a little bit of angst here on a Thursday morning. Yes. Michael Nathanson, Disney is back to 2014 pricing. Help. Yep. When does it yep. turn? You've been wrong, wrong, wrong. It's been like the New York Yankees. It's a disaster, I say. When does Thank Disney, you. When does Disney Thank churn? Can I just say upgrader when Bob Iger came back at 90 bucks and it's just been painful for me. So thank you, Tom, for reminding me. It's good. That's what we it's do. Got a, it's got a, exactly. And sell and sell houses in the suburbs. So here's what here's what I think is gonna happen. 2024 is a year of their they have to consolidate Hulu and Disney Plus. Margins in streaming are negative. Netflixes are in the twenties. To me, it's about streaming profitability in 2024. And they have to get Hulu in-house, which is going to happen by hopefully the end of the year. So I have a lost wow. hope in Disney. I think I think that is, again, I think this is your meta in 24. I mean, a year ago, people were, were killing this stock. And I think that Disney could be a great stock in 24. But you need to get streaming margins up to a level that people start caring about, which can take some time. Well, Michael, it's really interesting to hear this conversation because you're still a buy on Disney. Okay, could be a great stock in 2024, but to meditate a little bit longer on your Netflix comments, you're still neutral on the stock. Yeah. What would bump you up to a buy? Bumping up to a buy would be to have earnings numbers because valuation, to Thomas' point, to me is it's pretty full. Look at it versus Google, the Alphabet, or, or Meta. To me, it's having faith in numbers that are above consensus. I think we all have the same numbers now. We pretty much have modeled what the companies told us. 
there's no way to doubt it at this point. So, you know, pretty much we're just debating multiple at this point. I don't think people have a real edge on earnings, and our numbers are pretty much where consensus is. We're at Meta and other names. We've been above consensus, and that's been our call. You know, we we have conviction that numbers are wrong to the upside. We'll, we'll get very aggressive about the, uh, about the buy rating. And when it comes to Netflix and the streaming business in general, how does Netflix maintain market share here? Does that really all just come back to the content slate? Well, it's interesting. You know, when they built their business, they borrowed other people's content. And we were writing for many years that that was a dumb idea. So they would rent the office. They would rent friends. Given the state of media, you're starting to see evidence that they could go back to renting other people's content, which is a very cost-effective way to build a business. So what can happen longer term is that they could blend from making all these originals, which is a much tougher business, to renting people's movies and TV shows. And given, again, the state of media companies, that could happen. You know, I don't think Disney will do that. But, you know, Warner's, Paramount, you know, NBC Universal have talked about licensing more content. Mike, what are you expecting to hear after the bell when we get Amazon earnings, particularly around the acquisition of content having to do with sports, NFL, the last sort of death knell for cable? Right. So Mike Morton covers it for Amazon for us. He's very bullish on next year's margin opportunity. They're going to be looking at the NBA, right? So the NFL has gone well for them. The ratings are up in a really strong amount this year. And the NBA is the next big package up for grabs. And there's a good chance that they can get a slate of games, you know, getting a Tuesday or Thursday night games. So I think they're going to tell you that, look, it's going well. You see this as a chance, to your point, to really disintermediate cable networks. I think they're going to go for it. So, you know, Amazon to us is, is, is really in the second or third position behind ESPN for getting the next right. set of big rights here for sports. Award-winning Michael Nathanson with just decades of good, good news here. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.